Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Well, every fifth Sunday, we have a children's moment in our services, and it is with great pleasure that I welcome to the stage, where is she? Where, drum roll, please. There she is, Emily Hooks. Would you give her a great round of applause? Emily Hooks, take a bow. Wow, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, It's so great to be with all of you this morning and with all of you online. Um, Before I get started in our children's moment, I felt... I wanted to share what we've been talking about this past month um, in Jumpstart. And I have our slide up here. This has been our theme for the month, rules for life. And we've been talking about the word responsibility. So I just saw a lot of parents go, "Uh uh-huh, yep, that's a great idea. (laughs) So let me tell you the rules we've been talking about um, and why we've been talking about these rules. Um, So it can be really hard to keep up with all the responsibilities that we have in life. So we talked about the responsibilities we have at school and the responsibilities that we have at home, and if we're part of sports or anything else like that. But if we can focus on how God calls us to live, keeping track of all those responsibilities can be so much easier. So the first rule that we talked about is the most important rule, God's most important rule, and that is to love God and to love others. And we talked about what that looks like and ways that we can do that no matter what age we are, even when it's really hard. Um, The next rule was sharing the things that we have. And we talked about, yes, we should share our material things, but also our time and our talents to show God's love to others. The next rule was that we should always work hard. And we read the psalm about the ant and the slug and learned that God expects us to work hard for him. The last week, last week, our rule was to make the most of what we've been given, and we talked about how God calls us to use what we have to further his kingdom, and also to make the most of our circumstances. So I have our last rule for the month for all of you right now, and that is to choose your words wisely. So in Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, don't let any evil talk come out of your mouths. Say only what will help to build others up and to meet their needs. So in the book of Ephesians, Paul was reminding the Ephesians what God had done for them, and because of what God had done for them, they should look differently and act differently than the rest of the world. But we know God, when we know God, it should change us, and that includes how we talk to anyone. We should use our words wisely. So Paul also had something else to say about words. In Colossians 4, 6, he said, let your conversation always be full of grace and seasoned with and I brought with me, our conversation should be seasoned with salt. Why would Paul say that? Why would he say that our conversation should be seasoned with salt? So let me tell you about some of the properties of salt. Salt enhances flavor. Salt brings out the flavor around it, even in sweet foods. It enhances and makes things taste better, and our words can do the exact same thing. They can make others feel better, feel loved, and feel valued. Um, Next, salt preserves things. That means it keeps things from rotting or from going bad. Our words through the truth, truth of Jesus Christ have the power to save, heal, and help those who really, really need it. And last, I have that salt melts ice. Even though salt is really small, um, it has the power and the strength to melt through hard ice. 
We have all encountered people in our life that are like ice, um, but when we can encourage them with the truth of Jesus Christ, it can melt away their icy heart. So with that, we understand that words are so, so important. And I'm not just talking about the words that we talk, but the words that we say in our minds and that we type and text and share online. It's our responsibility to use words to build up others and to encourage them. And if we do, it'll make a big difference in our relationships. Remember, Jesus spoke words of wisdom, kindness, and love. He explained what was true about God in a way that people could easily understand. He used his words to speak truth and hope into the world. And it might seem overwhelming, but with God's help, you can use your words just like Jesus did. This might make us look really different, but Paul was saying we should look different in comparison to the rest of the world so that we can point others to God. So remember to use your words wisely and to be like salt. Um, and before I pray, I just want to remind the kiddos in the service that there are activity bags that you can get um, to color and to draw um, during the service. So will you pray with me? God, your words are trustworthy and true. We want to follow your example and use words that will build up and encourage others. Help us to have self-control and wisdom as we choose what words to say each and every day. And when we mess up, help us to use our words to repair what is wrong. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, thank you, Emily. Thank you. That's not only a message the kids need to hear, that's a message we need to hear. Right? <laughs> Play well, finish strong, right? Uh, not many of us do that in, in our culture, in our world today. Uh, thank you again, Emily. Where'd she go? Thank you again, Emily. I know. Oh, sorry. I, thank you again. Um, so I want to close out this month uh, entitled Perfect Peace with a passage of scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 10. Uh, we have been in the Torah in our Bible reading through this year, and we have come to Deuteronomy. Actually, we haven't. And let me tell you how I made this mistake this week. <laughs> Deuteronomy's next month, by the way. Uh, I got confused on my scripture reading passages and thought we were uh, further ahead than we really were. Um, but I think this could be a God thing, a divine thing. Uh, I have several of my students from Penn Christian Academy in the back there. Hi, guys. How are you? Welcome uh, to North May Street Church of God. I teach 7th and 8th grade Bible at Penn Christian Academy, and they're glutton for punishment. They want to come hear me speak this morning. So anyway, I welcome you guys. Glad you're here. Um, we're going to talk today about perfect peace and obedience. When you think about obedience, what, what thoughts are conjured in the mind? Are they positive, encouraging? Caleb. Um, <laughs> are they positive and encouraging thoughts when you think of obedience? See, I remember growing up and, of course, obedience as a kid is something you don't like to hear. Because you want to do what you want to do when you want to do it. And when you don't get what you want when you want it, you kick and scream and cry and whine and moan and many different other things. I wouldn't have quite considered myself to be a strong-willed child, but I knew what I wanted. And I often got what I wanted because I was an only child. Uh, that has no bearing on me as an adult today, uh, just saying. <laughs> Ask my wife, she'll tell you. 
she comes from, uh, she's one of four siblings, so can you imagine the turbulence of merging those two households? No, we did great, right? Are we doing, are we doing okay? <laughs> yeah, so we did great. Um, but when we think about obedience, we oftentimes don't, the first images that pop into our mind are usually not positive or peaceful or, you know, uh, conjuring, conjuring images of joy, right? When we think of obedience. But see, obedience has a long track record in scripture as being something that brings joy, that brings peace, that brings hope. Um, I remember growing up, Hearing my mom say, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Have you ever said that? Have you ever been told that? When you're being disciplined because you are disobedient, right? Um, This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Or you don't understand what I'm doing right now, but someday when you're older, you'll understand why I have to make these decisions, why you have to be disciplined or punished in this way because you disobeyed. And it's true. When I was a kid, I didn't understand why I got punished at times. I felt that it was unfair, that it was wrong, it was unjust. I couldn't articulate it that way as a kid, but I felt there was this gross injustice because I had, before cell phones, I had to stay in my room. Yeah. Now I want to be banished to my room at times, right? (laughs) Parents know what I'm talking about. Um, how do you find peace and obedience? See, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, we come to this epic story in the narrative of the Israelites' history where you go from Genesis, the beginning of all creation, God creates man and woman in the garden, everything is perfect, there's a disobedience that happens that causes the spiral effect of sin and death to enter the world. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden as a discipline to a disobedience, but it was also for their protection. You see what God's doing here? He often does what we as parents do. When he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, he says, "Um, it's your punishment. You're not allowed to be here. Deuteronomy, or Genesis chapter three. But he does it for the purpose of protection because not only did they eat of a tree they were told not to eat of, which was the knowledge of good, tree of knowledge of good and evil, there was another tree in the garden that they were willing, they were able to partake freely of. They were encouraged to eat from as a tree of life. That tree of life was given to them so that they could eat of it. And so at the time when God disciplines and punishes them, he kicks them out of the garden where the tree of life is, and he puts flaming swords at the entrances of the garden so that they can't get back in. Well, that seems mean. God is a meanie head, right? No, he's not a meanie head. Uh, he actually does it for our own good because there was a tree of life in there. And if you read Genesis 3, you find where God says, if they continue to partake of the tree of life, they will live perpetually in sin and death. They will live in this sinful fallen state. So God says, I don't want them to live that way. And so their days will be numbered. That sounds harsh and painful too. Their days will be numbered. Now, they were numbered long before the flood. Uh, The oldest person lived to be 969 years old. His name was Methuselah. I always thought it'd be cool to name a kid that. (laughs) 
They'd have to have an old soul, though. <laughs> Anywho, um, that was a bad dad joke, wasn't it? But after the flood, their days were numbered to about 120. And then sin and death has continued to run rampant ever since then. The ramifications of the first disobedience has led to multiple disobedience throughout human history. You can't look at a history book and not see that, to see the damaging effects of sin and death. I think if, if my reading is correct, some of the resources I've read said that there have been only about cumulatively 300 years of documented peace in the world, where there was not a documentation of some war or some kind of travesty going on globally. 300 years out of however many years of documented world history. Sad. Peace can reside in obedience. When we obey God, we find that there's freedom. I oftentimes hear people say, well, I can't, how can, I don't want to be a believer in Christ because then I have to give up X, Y, or Z. I can't live this life or that life. I can't do what I want to do, go where I want to go, be who I want to be. If I come to Christ, then I'll be limited in what I can do. If I truly believed in all that hullabaloo, if I believed in the Bible, then I would have, I would become some prudish person. A sourpuss like I see a lot of Christians. But when we submit ourselves to Christ and we honor his commandments, his commitments, and his teachings, there's something significant that happens. When we submit our lives to Christ in obedience to his teachings and his ways, you find very quickly that you're free. See, the great deception of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy is to get you to believe that you're freer to do what you want to do when you want to do it on your time clock, but you find that you spiral into this place of bondage, whether it's through alcohol, drugs, pornography, or any other vice that might be on you that is not common to anybody else. You think, well, I'm free if I get to choose and do what I want to do when I want to do it. But I find oftentimes that people that do that are the most miserable people. They're not fun to be around. And the only time they may be slightly fun to be around is when they're completely obliterated by the drug or the alcohol that they're on because they're not really being themselves and it's weird to be around them because, quite honestly, they're not themselves. I also find that people who are not free in Christ, who are not living according to his will, his ways, and his standards, living in obedience to the context of the boundaries he's created to keep us safe, to keep us secure, to keep us protected, when we don't live that way, I often find insecurity spring up. I know I struggle with insecurity. I struggle with wanting to make a good impression. I struggle when I let people down, and I get, guess what? I do. I let my family down from time to time. I say things I shouldn't. I do things I shouldn't. 
And like Paul, I can say what a wretched, miserable person I am. And yet there are those who aren't even followers of Christ who are wretched and miserable and oftentimes don't believe that they are or internally they believe that they are, but they allow their insecurities to drive them and then they put on this weird mask, so to speak. No, everything's great. See, we're masters of that in the church. You step into an arena like this and you're all dolled up, you're pretty, and somebody says, how you doing? And unless you're a blatantly honest person, which most people are not, What's the common response? How you doing? I'm great. Everything's fine and wonderful, right? When all reality is you may have some really hard decisions you need to make or you're being pressed up against the wall by circumstances or situations or your job or, you know, the bill collectors that are hammering your phone and knocking at your door. Well, not during covid but you know what I mean, which is one of the positive things about all of this. They're still coming to your door? All right. Well, good, good times. We find Moses is being disciplined because he disobeyed God. He's not allowed to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy, um, who has taken my Old Testament class? What does the word Deuteronomy mean? Grace? I told you I'd call on you. Deuteronomy. Second law. Give her a round of applause back there. <laughs> you should have seen the fear in her eyes. And she's sitting in the back and I could barely see, but she's like. <laughs> Deuteronomy actually means second law. Where do we find the first law? We find the first law in Exodus. So the law is given to Moses on Mount Sinai in the ten form of Ten Commandments. Then we get the Levitical law and Leviticus, which is the most fun book to ever read. You've got, you've got to read. If you have insomnia, read Leviticus. It'll knock you out like an elephant tranquilizer, but it's still a good book to read. Levitical law, you get to Numbers. Guess what the book of Numbers is? It is about numbers because they take census and records. Why? Because they have nothing else to do in the wilderness for 40 years. Because <laughs> remember, they came to the promised land and God said, here it is. It's yours for the taking. And so they decided to send spies in, 12 of them. Two came back and said, we can take it. 10 others came back and said, uh-uh, they're stupid and we should stone them to death, right? Seriously, if you haven't read it, it's marvelous. Read it. And so we get that first law, and then they're wandering in the wilderness because they come back, they don't take the land. And so God says, fine, for every day that the spies were in the land of Canaan, which would become Israel, the promised land, for every day I'm going to add a year until a whole generation of you guys and ladies die off. So you won't get to see the land, but those who are 20 and younger, you'll get to see it. Because they disobeyed God, because they didn't do what God had said, here, it's yours. I will drive the bad people out ahead of you. See, that was God's original plan. Forty years later, the plan had changed. But the first plan was, you go on in, I will drive them out ahead of you. But I won't drive them out all at once, because if I do, 
the, the, the land will become way too wild with animals and stuff, and you're not going to know how to control it and take care of it. So I will drive them out ahead of you. If you do it my way, it'll go a lot easier for you. That's what he's saying. And they said, no, we can't do it. The people are too big. They'll squash us, squash us like bugs. They said, they, literally, they said, we look like grasshoppers to them, and they thought we looked as small as grasshoppers too. And so they disobeyed. So Numbers is this book of when they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. It is an awesome book to read. Yes, there are tons of census numbers and, and all that stuff. But if you can weed through that, you'll see what happened in the wilderness. This is when manna came down from heaven in the wilderness and they were fed. And this is when they griped and complained because they got sick of manna. They wanted meat like they had in Egypt. And God said, fine, I'm pretty ticked off at you. I'll give you meat. You want meat? I'll give you meat. And so a wind blew in all of these quail to where they're like ankle to knee deep and they're eating and stuffing their face with quail. And God's like, oh, you stubborn people. I'm going to make you sick. I'm going to make you sick on meat. And he did. And there was punishment and discipline because of disobedience, griping. It could be. You ever do that with your kids? You make something for dinner. And like, what are we having? Oh, we're having this. Seriously? Ugh! <laughs> well, we have a rule in my house. You eat what's made or you get nothing. Right? Or you, there's peanut butter and jelly. You can go make yourself a sandwich. I've cooked. I've gotten this ready. Right? What's on that? Are there, are there mushrooms and onions in that? Yeah. And my kids aren't allergic to mushrooms and onions, just so you know. <laughs> I am really digressing, and I know I am limited on time here. I'm going to push through. We will fly through this, but just let me get you, get you to this point. So in the wilderness for those 40 years, in the book of Numbers, Moses does something, and he disobeys God. Okay, so God says, because they need water, the people are thirsty, and there's, of course, when you're in the wilderness or desert... Fresh supply of water is pretty scarce. So God says, I want you to do something. Go speak to the rock. There's a certain rock that I want you to speak to, and it'll give forth water. Well, Moses at this point is ticked off at the people. So it's like a tag team. Like God gets really angry. I'm going to blot the people out. I'm going to make a new nation out of you, Moses. And Moses is like, no, please don't do that. If you're going to do that, blot my name out too. And then this is the time that Moses is ticked off. And God's like, no, 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 just go speak to the rock and let it give water. So Moses goes to the rock and he's yelling at the people. You guys are stupid and stubborn. And he doesn't say stupid. I'm ad-libbing a little bit here. Read it for yourself. But he's really scolding them more than I've ever scolded as a pastor. And he's letting them have it. And the staff that he had, the one that he had at the Red Sea and the parted and all that, he takes it and uses it like a baseball bat. And he goes, whack, whack. And by God's sheer grace, the rock gives water. Even though he disobeyed God, but there was a consequence. And that consequence came when God said, because you disobeyed me, you won't get to see the promised land. You're not going to get the privilege as you've led them out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery. You're not going to get the privilege to lead them into the promised land. You should have done what I told you to do. 
And so Deuteronomy is at the end of the 40 years. And Moses is now preparing a new generation to go into the land. Are you tracking with me or am I losing? Those of you at home, raise your hand so I can see. I'm just kidding. I can't see you, but I see that hand. I'm sure it's there. Listen, if you're tracking with me, I want you to catch the full picture, the background of this, so you can know when I read this in just a second what's going on. So he's preparing this next generation to go into the promised land, knowing he himself can't go. That's why it's called second law. It's just this reprisal, if you will, of the law. We have the Ten Commandments repeated again in here, as it was in Exodus chapter 20. We have a lot of redundancy built in there, but it's to train up that next generation for what they're getting ready to go into. And this is where we get to this passage today, Deuteronomy chapter 10. We see this picture of Moses' instruction not only being written down on scrolls, but more than likely being orally transmitted to them. There's a thing called the oral tradition before things were written on scrolls. Then you have a written tradition, okay? So the oral tradition was handed down by mouth. And so this is what, on behalf of God, Moses says to the people in verse 12 of chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. I'm living, living, I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. And now, Israel, he says, what does the Lord your God require of you? Sounds like Micah, doesn't it? To, love just, uh, to, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Well, actually, before Micah even said that, hundreds of years later, Moses says it to the people. What does the Lord require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases him. And love him and serve him with all your heart and soul. And you must always obey the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. For whose own good? For our own good. What I'm doing for you, you don't understand, but it's for your own good. Right? Like a parent lovingly says to a child. But he's the perfect parent to the most imperfect of children. Verse 14. Look, the highest heavens and the earth and everything in it belong to the Lord your God. Yet the Lord chose your ancestors as the objects of his love. And he chose you, their descendants, above all other nations, as is even evident today. Therefore, change your hearts and stop being stubborn. Now, I want you to not read into that passage in that paragraph something that's not there. He chose them as his representatives. He chose them because he loved them. Does that mean that he didn't love other nations or other peoples or other tribes? No. But he chose a representative people. And if you go all the way back, as I mentioned last week, to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, with the calling of Abraham to come out of the land of Ur and go to a land I'll show you, what he said was to them, they would be a blessing to the nations. As God's representative, they would represent him on earth, and they would, should have loved their neighbors as themselves. That's in the Levitical law. And they should have loved God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, that's how they were to be a blessing. So when you read this specific section of Scripture, don't think to the exclusion of all other nations, God only loved Israel or the descendants of Jacob. It's that they were the ones chosen to represent him and to share his message of love with the other nations, to be a blessing to the nations. Now, verse 17, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Do you see what he's saying there? I've had people question me on this. So there were other gods? 
If he's the God of all gods and the Lord of all lords, is the Bible telling us there were other gods? No. If you actually read that, you'll notice that in our English, it's translated as capital G and then lowercase g. Capital L and lowercase l to indicate what is being translated there is these lowercase g's are just idols. They're just representations of false entities which don't even exist. Okay? But he's the God of all these supposed gods. And he's the Lord of all these supposed lords is a better way to read that. Therefore, change your hearts and stop being stubborn. How many of you are stubborn? Come on. Show of hands. Right? It's true. We have moments of stubbornness. We have moments of hard-heartedness. Whether it's with each other or with God, we've all had moments of stubbornness. That's what sin is. That's what sin comes out of, is a stubbornness, a pridefulness, and a selfishness rooted in the sinful nature. Verse 17, for the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. <laughs> I love that. He is no respecter of persons is how I, when I was growing up, I heard it down, down south. He's no respecter of persons. He doesn't take bribes. I think it's funny. You think, God, I see people, you know, reasoning with God. Well, God, if you do this, then I'll do that. You know what? I don't know what more you want me to do. But see, what's so cool about God is he's even, fine, I'll play your little game. Lay a fleece out. It'll be wet in the morning. Okay, you want to do it again? It'll be dry in the morning. Whatever, right? I'm doing the Gideon story from the book of Judges. But that's, that's, we do that with God. God, if you spare my life, then I will See, God doesn't take bribes, but sometimes he makes concessions for our weaknesses and our sinful nature to get us to where he wants us to be. All right. Verse 18, he ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. So you too must show love to foreigners, for you yourselves are foreigners in the land of Egypt. You must fear the Lord your God and worship him and cling to him. Your oaths must be in his name alone. He alone is your God, the only one who is worthy of your praise, the one who has done these mighty miracles that you've seen with your own eyes. See, at this point, even the younger generation had seen the miracles of the parting of the sea, the manna from heaven, the quail drifting in on the wind. They had seen how God had provided for them in the wilderness. They'd seen the miracles of God, and they're being reminded yet again, that same God will precede you into the land. He will go with you. When your ancestors went down to Egypt, there were only 70 of them. But now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. What did he tell, Mo, or what did he tell Abraham in Genesis 12? Abraham, you don't have any kids, but I'm going to tell you something. Even in your old age, I'm going to make your, your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and, and as numerous as the grains of sands on the earth. And now, many years later, centuries later, here they are on the edge of the promised land in the wilderness of the Negev getting ready to enter the promised land, and there are millions 
of them. God will fulfill his promises. Maybe not in your lifetime, but he always fulfills his promises. So what's the main takeaway? Real quick. Peace is a result of love and obedience to God. What do we learn here? We learn to fear, love, serve, and obey God. This is one of the takeaways we have here. Fear, love, serve, and obey God. Let me give you a quick understanding of what that is. To fear God is something we talked about back in June. What does it mean to fear God versus fearing man? To fear God means to uh, have a holy reverence and awe in his presence. The word awful A-W-F-U-L actually is a derivative of this fear when you translate it from Hebrew. Some of our older passages of scripture, like from the King James Version, reads, to stand in awe of God, to stand in wonder and amazement at him, to realize in contrast to who he is that we are so small and so unworthy of his love. It's to stand amazed with a jaw-dropping expression of wonder. That's what it means to fear God. To love God. This is ahava. Say ahava. It's like you get a little something in a second. You know, it's a Hebrew thing. But ahava love is equal to agape love in the New Testament. To fear and love God. It's this unconditional, sacrificial love of God and love for others. To serve God means to surrender my life to him and to do what he calls me to do. To obey his commands is the next one. To live by his statutes. And it's not, before we get this idea that it is this, oh, I'm saved by what I do for God, that's not what it's about. See, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that in the book of Romans. We are saved by grace through faith. But we are called to live in agreement and under the obedience of what he has taught us to live in. So let me ask you a question. If somebody says they love you, but they cheat on you, they betray you, They curse you to your face and behind your back. Do they love you? That's a good question, right? See, Jesus, or excuse me, God of the Old Testament, who came embodied in the form of Christ on earth, says, the world will know you are my followers by what? Your love for one another. When Jesus is being questioned by the religious leaders of what the greatest commandment is, he says, well, honestly, there's two, but they're the same. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he puts those two together, and he says, all of the law and the prophets hang on those two. And you can go back and check everything in Scripture. Everything boils down to those two. And those two, in essence, are one. And let me explain why. Because you can't love God and not love your neighbor. And you can't truly love your neighbor the way with the ahava or agape love without loving God first. Because we can only love because he first loved us. Okay? So when we believe in him and we accept his love through the grace of Christ on the cross in that surrendering to him, then we are able to love as he first loved us. 
Okay, so that's why he said there's really not one, there's two, but they're together. They're symbiotic in nature. They cannot be separated. You cannot love God without loving your neighbor. And who is my neighbor? Because you remember the good Samaritan story? He was the villain to the Hebrews because he was a Samaritan. He was a crossbreed. Technically, if you look in the history books, he was half Jew and half Canaanite or pagan. And Jesus makes the villain the hero. And Jesus says, that's your neighbor. So who is the greatest enemy in your life? I want you to think of that right now. Don't blurt it out because you're being recorded. Um, and they may be watching and it could get really, but it could be a moment of reconciliation, which would be really good because we're in the theme of peace and you can't have peace without reconciliation. You get where I'm going. So think of the biggest enemy, the one who has grievously harmed and hurt you. And this is painful. I want you to sit in that for a minute. Now the question is, are you a believer in Christ? Would you consider yourself a Christian? How do you feel about your enemy? See, Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Just after the Beatitudes, or at the end of the section of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, you need to love your enemies. It's the Ahava love. It's not something I can muster up in myself. It's the love that comes from God through me to them. I can only love because he's first loved me. I can't do it in my own strength, power, or anything else. It's because he first loved me. Now, he doesn't only leave it there because love is an action. It's not just something we say. He says, love your enemies. And then he says, pray for those who persecute you. Ooh. So he doesn't just say, love them. He says, take it a step further. Where do we get the best example of this? See, we get the best example of this in the Gospels toward the very end of the narrative and the story of Christ. He's hanging on the cross and he cries out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Those who were acting as enemies of Christ, nailing him to the cross, brutalizing him, mocking him, he has the wherewithal in the midst of the most excruciating and intense pain, dying on the cross, to say, Father, forgive them? How much more should we forgive one another? And in that same passage in Matthew 5, he says, you need to forgive or your heavenly father can't forgive you. Oh. Second part is, he says to change your heart and don't be stubborn. Change your heart and don't be stubborn. If you're still stubborn, you haven't had a complete change of heart yet. Oh, that hurts. Because I have to say the same thing to myself. Why am I being so stubborn? Sometimes my wife has to say, why are you being so stubborn? Because I'm at war within myself oftentimes. The things I don't want to do, I, I do. And the things I know I shouldn't do, or, or the, the things, things I know I should do, I don't do. See, Paul wrestled with this too. We're wretched and miserable because we do these things. Well, what are we supposed to do? 
Deny yourself, and this is Luke chapter 9. I said this this morning in the class I was teaching. Luke chapter 9. If any, if any of you wants to be my follower, here, here's the protocol. Here's what this looks like. Deny yourself daily. He doesn't just say deny yourself. He says do it daily. Why? Because he knows how we are. <laughs> Every day is a new day. Every day is a new day, and we find ourselves getting sucked into various different arguments, frustrations. If we're not careful, we don't deny ourselves. We get offended, we get upset, we get angry, and sometimes, but rarely, it's a righteous anger. Sometimes it's an anger out of selfishness. I can't believe the injustice they did toward me. I can't believe what they are doing. I can't, instead of saying, all right, God, everybody's a sinner in need of a savior, I'm not perfect, neither are they. Matthew chapter 7, same Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, before you go to somebody and talk to them about the speck in their eye, get the log out of your own eye. See, he's got this whole perspective going on here. You've got to uh, get rid of your stubbornness. And the only way to get rid of your stubbornness is to surrender yourself completely. Deny yourself daily and then take up your cross and follow him. You can't take up a cross if you're carrying your own desires and wants because you got your hands too full with what you want. In order to deny your in order to carry the cross, you have to let go of everything else. See, Jesus even struggled carrying his own cross up the hill to Golgotha, so much so that they called a guy from the side of the crowds to carry it for him. Now, he had been beaten and brutalized up to this point, so but it's still huge beam of wood. It was everything he could do to muster the strength to carry that cross. And what he says is, you got to let go of everything you're carrying in order to carry this. But I'm telling you, it's worth your life to carry this. Okay? All right. Last but not least, he tells us to promote justice. He tells us to promote justice to the foreigners, to the widows, and to the orphans. Okay? Let's quickly go through that. What is justice? Justice is doing on earth as it is done in heaven. If you are a believer in Christ, when we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are asking him, through us, promote justice. God's justice is different than the world's justice. Did you know that? So when we say things are not fair here on earth, we are rightly saying they are not fair. But if we are saying they are not fair because we believe in a justice of the world, by the world's standards of justice, then we're playing, on the wrong, we're playing on the wrong field or we're in the wrong game. See, Jesus, standing before Pontius Pilate, said, My kingdom is not of this world. If we are believers in Christ, we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. That kingdom of God has a whole different set of perspectives, expectations, rules, and commandments that do not function the way the world functions. So if we are to promote justice in this world, it cannot be through the government structures that are in place anywhere in society across this globe as believers in Christ. Christ, to bring justice into the world means to be kingdom citizens promoting the peace and the justice he promotes. So this is where the church gets in trouble and has gotten in trouble over the past two decades. We have so gotten involved with politics to the negation of the Holy Spirit and of God himself that we have gotten sucked into an evil system and structure, whether you're Democrat or Republican. Now, hear me out. 
There are wicked and evil people on both sides of the aisle. And there are good people, I do believe, on both sides of the aisle. And I know you guys are screaming internally right now, no, there's not! <laughs> or some of you at home may be even saying that. There is only one perfect person with one perfect structure, with one perfect morality that has never failed. And church... If we are building on any other foundation or structure than that, shall I even say we're screwed? I know a preacher shouldn't say that word, but we are in a mess. And let me tell you, the church in our culture is in a mess. Because we don't do justice God's way of doing justice. See, Jesus gives us this perfect example of, of, of how we do justice. And I know I'm going long. Please bear with me on this. Please, can I have a couple more minutes? Okay, if you need to go, go. But let me, let me say this. In the New Testament, Jesus says about justice. And these were social constructs of his day and age. If someone comes to you and strikes you, what? Turn to him and offer the other one as well, Right? If they strike you on your left, is it right? Let me see. I, I'm dyslexic right now. I'm going to strike my pastor. She's one of my associates. So, so strike it, and that's your left. Yeah, if someone strikes you on your left cheek, offer them your right also. I'm sorry, I had to get my perspective in place. If someone strikes you on your left, offer them your right. Do you know what he's talking about there? He's talking about justice. And let me explain really quickly. If somebody strikes you on your left cheek, Excuse me, on your right cheek. That's what it is. Striking you on your right cheek off of your left. That's how the passage goes. They would never use the left hand. In that culture, in the Middle East, they still don't use the left hand except for business. All right? They use it for unclean things. The right hand they use for only pure things. You only eat with your right hand. You only shake hands with your right hand. You only touch holy things with your right hand. The left hand is preserved for doing, touching, cleaning, and doing things that are unclean. All right? Like cleaning yourself. All right, right hand. Somebody comes up to you and they strike you on your right cheek. What are they doing? Ah, what does that signify? Even in that culture some 2,000 years ago, what did a strike on the right cheek signify? It's an insult. It is an act of submission. If I'm backhanding you, I'm basically saying, I'm your superior, you're my subservient. This is oftentimes how household servants or slaves were treated. They were treated with the backhand. So what is Jesus saying when he says, okay, turn and offer them your left? How am I going to do that? I was going to call you up here. Or you two. Hey, you, Sarah, come here for a second. I'm not going to hit you. I would never hit a woman. All right? So... I'm striking you this way, you're going to offer me your left. Offer me your left. Right? What am I, if I'm in her position, what am I forcing the person who's oppressing me to do? No, they wouldn't use this hand. I can't backhand her this way. What am I doing? See, what she would be doing is forcing me into a position to say, if you're going to hit me, hit me like an equal. Do you see the way to nonviolent resistance? See, this is what Martin Luther King Jr. knew in the 60s. Nonviolent resistance. I'm sorry, you go. Uh, 
See, because he was a man of the gospel, a man of the word of God, and he knew that in order order to overthrow the corrupt systems of this world, you don't do it by the world's standards. You don't offer violence for violence or evil for evil, but instead you overcome evil with good. That's scriptural. Church, we got to do what we got to do, and that is God's way of doing it. If someone takes your cloak from you, your outer coat, offer them your tunic. All right, let me talk about styles of clothing. If you take my outer shirt, I have a t-shirt on under here, all right? Now, the outer cloak was also a bedding material. When you bedded down at night, it became your blanket. Somebody takes your cloak, in the Old Testament, they were required to give it back before sundown. If you gave it to them for collateral, you had to give it back. But there were corrupt Jewish people that said, I'm not giving it back till you pay your debt. And so what was happening is this great injustice to the poor, who in essence were enslaved to the rich. And he says, Jesus, these are Jesus' words. If somebody takes your cloak, offer them your tunic as well. Guess what your tunic is? Your underwear. Okay? And it was a short mid-thigh kind of clothing. It would be like a modern-day slip, a full slip. I I don't know how women wear slips. Anyway, it'd be like like a little bitty bathrobe, very thin material. And so guess what he's doing? Jesus says, somebody takes your cloak, and they're not giving it back. Go to them and offer them your tunic. What are you going to be? You would think in that culture that it would be shame on you. But in the Jewish tradition... The shame would be on the person who made you naked. Did you know that? If you're walking around naked, then the question in society was, who made you that way? Who took even the clothes off your back? I mean, it's not like we had a closet full of clothes in those days. They had a tunic and a cloak. Unless you were super rich, and most people weren't. So it brought shame on the one who made you naked. What is Jesus saying? Don't promote justice in the way the world promotes justice by sticking it to the man. Do it in a nonviolent way that points out the error of their ways and makes them look shamed before the rest of the world because they're not doing the right thing. Promote justice. The third thing was, if a Roman soldier forces you to carry his pack for a mile, go the second one. Right? Right? Did you know there was a Roman law that soldiers could demand anybody carry their pack a mile? So I could call any of you guys. So if I'm a Roman soldier, Ruth, carry my pack. We're going this way. But I had to keep track of what that mile was as a Roman soldier. Jesus says carry it the second mile. There would be severe disciplinary action on a Roman soldier who forced anyone to carry their pack more than a mile. Do you know that? So, can you imagine you're walking the road and the Roman soldier has forced you to carry his pack a mile and you just keep walking. He's like, no, no, come back. I'm going to get in trouble. Right? Because you're usually with the battalions or whatever else and your commanding officers are like, no, 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 come back, come back. No, wait. You're going to get me in trouble. I'm going to get beat. I'm going to get, something's going to happen. See, Jesus wasn't saying roll over and take it when somebody's persecuting you. 
love them, and the best love that we can do is show people the error of their ways when it doesn't line up with God's purposes, wills, commands, and ways. That's the point. Do it differently. It's not right or left, it's God. In church, we got to get off of these bandwagons of my candidate didn't make it. Or my, you know, it's going to get bad regardless. I don't think God promised us it was going to get good this side of heaven. In this world, you're going to have troubles of many kinds. But take heart, I have overcome the world. All right. Let me close with this as our worship team comes forward. You saw the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan. And I realize it's noon. I've said this a couple times, but this year being a year of peace, we have been called to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers, peacetakers, or peacefakers, right? We are to be promoting peace, promoting justice, not the way the world promotes peace or justice, but the way God promotes peace or justice. And as conduits of God's grace, as conduits of God's peace and his justice into the world, we are to be salt and light. And in being salt and light, we should be impacting those who are on the scale in our society of persecution. In Jesus' day and in the Old Testament days, it was the stranger who had come into town, the foreigner. It was the widow who couldn't provide for herself because of the social structures of her day and age, and it was the orphan. And an orphan could be without both parents or just without the mom, or excuse me, the dad. You oftentimes see it translated as the fatherless. Because if there was a child and a mother, and the mother couldn't provide for the household the way the father could, then there was an orphan and a widow in the same home. I believe God has called North Maine. And here's, here's how I know this. Instead of us leading the charge and asking God to come join us in what we're doing, the best way to follow God is to see what he's doing and join him in his work. Okay? We oftentimes call God, God, we're doing this new thing. Would you bless it? And I've learned in over 20 years of ministry that it's better to see what he's doing, join him in his work, and say, God bless you, <laughs> you know? And I've seen how he's opened doors to foster care and adoption among many in our congregation. I started praying that through some months ago with communication of some of our members and, and uh, staff. And I believe God's opening us this door to serve in a way to impact our own backyard by being a safe haven, a place of security, love, and nurture for those that are in the system, that are forgotten, that are left behind. If I remember correctly, there are over 18,000 kids in the foster care system in Western PA, if not in all of PA, hundreds of thousands of kids in the United States. I heard somebody yesterday tell me that they had done some research and they figured out if every church in our nation decided to adopt two children out of the system, there were the, the foster care agencies and the adoption agencies would be put out of business. You want to change a generation for the sake of Christ? To provide safety, love, support, hope? Some of these kids get thrown from 
home to home to home. I ask you to consider if you got an extra bed, an extra room, if you've got the love in your heart, the love of God in your heart, would you possibly consider it? And you might be saying, okay, that's not what I'm called to do. If we are a fostering church or a foster to adopt church, what does that look like? For those of you that don't feel the calling, could you watch some kids so that a family could have a date night? Could you provide meals for a week when they bring a child home? Could, do you have extra resources and supplies? We started a foster care supply room with diapers and bassinets and car seats because sometimes foster care parents get calls at 2 in the morning in an emergency situation where a child is being taken out of a home and it's chaos and they don't have what they need. So we wanted to be able to provide that with a resource room that we could say, yeah, give me a call, we'll open it up and we'll get you something. See, I'm telling you, there's some practical ways we can as a church impact our community for the better to promote justice. If you want more information on that, you can stop by our Welcome Center today. Uh, we partner with Bethany Christian Services, which is a foster agency, and they are also an adoption agency. If you want to know more information, put it on a communication card. We'll let you know other ways you could be involved. But this is a long pursuit. This isn't a one-and-done thing. So if we're going to do this as a church, it's something we need to continually be in the mindset of. Okay? All right. Let me pray. And I'll let you go. Father, we oftentimes don't know what the next step is. We know we should be obedient. And we know that, honestly, intellectually, there's peace through obedience. But God, we don't often know what to do, how to do it, or what the next steps are. Of course, we read your word, we see the right things to do, but oftentimes we don't know how that practically plays out in our life, in our world, in our homes. Reveal to us your purpose, your calling on our lives. Show us what we can do. As a church, we believe you're showing us. But as individuals, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to the reality of your moving in our lives and your calling on our lives. And we thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.